Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello, listeners. Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, episode 333. Thursday, February the 8th, 2024. How are you, Mark? I'm wonderful, Brendan. It's just, it's really hot and muggy where I'm now. But earlier in the week, I had a great experience with a snake. I've got to tell you about that. Yes, you must. (laughs) (laughs) You'll remember last week I was driving home from having driven into town and and on the way home, uh, there was a crocodile on the road. Well, I was driving the same road home on Sunday, and and I've come across the a beautiful big taipan. And the beauty of this taipan is most of the ones in northern Queensland are a reasonably drab olive brown. This one had a beautiful coppery brown stripe down the middle of its back. It was about six foot long and wasn't too happy that I pulled up next to it on the road and I just shooed it off. I didn't catch it, wouldn't touch it. Um, and it moved pretty quickly and uh, and it did as it got to the edge of the road, just turned around and eyeballed me before it Gave slid it off. Finger. Yeah, it, it literally did. <laughs> the tooth. Yes. <laughs> Now, a couple of things about that. Yes, you did send me a picture of that crocodile last week as you headed home after our recording session. Not that I was there, Mark. He'd been stuck here in Melbourne. Very impressive. Now, did you take a picture of this Taipan or not? You didn't have time. I didn't get it. No, no, I got a little bit of footage um, just with the iPhone. I didn't get a chance to get the camera out in time they do move pretty quickly but i will i will send you the footage send me send me the footage of that and um point number two i've I've never met a nice taipan i must admit um (laughs) with all my time as a zoo veterinarian and as a exotics slash reptile veterinarian mark they're all pretty cranky i don't know about your experience with them mark so yeah i'm glad you kept your distance from the little friend there and Thirdly, if we're up to number three, I didn't see something as exotic as that, Mark, or as spectacular as that, or probably just as spectacular. I was driving to work, I think it was this morning, Mark, and a car flashed their lights at me. I thought it was going to be, you know, a speed camera, a port, you know, portable speed camera ahead, and it was an echidna crossing the oh, road. Oh, wow. Mark, and um, they are amazing animals. They're one of the most my, my favourite animals, the echidna, and, and I thought, gee, we've got some pretty special animals in the in the country we live in here, Mark. So um, it was, I just, yeah, I stopped the car and I let him waddle, he or she, waddle his or her way across the road onto the verge there, Mark, and, yeah, it um, put a smile on my door, Mark. That, they just, well, just like the type in with me. Both of yes. us had a gigantic smile on our dial. <laughs> Excellent. Well, there we go, Brandon and Mark's adventures. Um, And with that, we'll we'll just do a bit of housekeeping, vetgurus.com, as I mentioned at the start. Head over there, poke around, look at our previous episodes, all 332 of them. Subscribe if you haven't, and we'd love it if you mentioned our podcast to a friend. Um, We're always after 
more subscribers, new subscribers, send us an email if you want to drop us a line and say hello, vetgurus at gmail.com. And with that, Mark, I think we have one news story that you wanted to get stuck into, and it's about a a jawbone, and it's quite an interesting story, this, isn't it? I love fossils, Brendan. I love fossils. And, And it's a little bit of a strange thing when you love fossils because despite being a very old country, we probably have fewer fossils per area in our country than other parts of the world. So if you're an Australian and you're interested in fossils, you really sometimes have to go a long way before you find a good one. But this one is an Australian one. It was found on the banks of the Murray River in South Australia. It's estimated to be 19 million years old. I mean, it's the the tip of the lower jaw of the mandible of a baleen whale, one of the... uh, earliest um, of that family, once they'd sort of evolved from their four-legged land-dwelling counterparts, their ancestors, they um, they got in the water and um, the earliest baleen whales, yeah, were, were, um, were quite surprisingly large in my opinion they're not nearly as large as the modern fin whales and uh, blue whales the largest living things ever but these baleen whales were still nine meters long and had a fairly sizable um sizable chin um so the the um the really interesting thing about this is that you know, there's a variety of species of toothed whale that have um, uh, fished the oceans for millions of years. But the ancestors of the baleen whales, those whales that have a curtain of keratinized material that droops down from the top jaw and acts as a filter uh, for them to trap fish or krill in their mouth, yeah, their ancestors were, you know, largely missing. And so sometime uh, between um, about 20 million years ago, the, uh, the ancestors of the, the baleen whales seemed to disappear. And uh, so uh, fossil whales from episodes between that time and now are exceedingly rare. So it's an outstanding find to, um, to get this one in Australia. And it's... Fairly old, isn't it, Mark? This fossil. Well, I think <laughs> it's nineteen million years old. Yes, they they, they um, um, uh, are um, estimated. Yes, I didn't know whether you meant it's. I was trying to figure out: Have I misread this? Is there somewhere <laughs> it, has it been discovered like a hundred years ago, and they've only just found it in the South of Australian well, Museum? A little bit like that. No. Mel, Mel, uh, Museums Victoria Research yeah. Institute, and it was actually um, misplaced. Yeah, it was. A, <laughs> how, many, how many times does this happen, Mark? That, that um, you know, in these museum collections, somebody decides it's probably an intern or something that they say, go down into the basement and look around through the drawers and the old cupboards there, and they find something spectacular. That um, that it's the um, Indiana Jones yeah. phenomenon. Yes. Um, so, yes, I, I just found the paragraph in this article, Mark. More than 100 years ago, paleontologist Francis Cudmore found the very tips of a large pair of fossils, whale jaws, eroding on the banks of the Murray 
River Mark, the 19-year-old fossils, they remained unrecognised in the collection until they were rediscovered in a drawer uh, by one of the authors, Eric Fitzgerald. So there we well, go. So there you go. They are old, 19 million years old, and they are old 100 years they've been in the um, museum for. In the drawer, yes. So make sure you go through your drawers occasionally, Mark. That's um, that's the moral of this story, I think. So there we go. I don't think. Well, well, I reckon we need to jump in to our main news story, our main topic, Mark. And this is um, this is a good one. I, I think we may have touched on this one before, but uh, you've provided a very extensive dot list, Mark, <laughs> um, twenty plus. So I'm going to. Um, compact this down to um, a fairly punchy um, 15 minutes mark uh, pharyngostomy and esophagostomy tube placement in exotics in particular I think will stick to birds and reptiles mark yes Brendan it's um it they are I, I've had reason to use them on numerous occasions in those two uh, classes of organisms and I find them to be an outstanding tool um, an outstanding additional uh, therapeutic uh, agent that we can bring to bear, particularly in our exotic species. They have some um, like things that you've got to be aware of, um, things that you've got to try and do a little bit differently maybe, but they're, they're without a doubt a very, very useful tool. And I would, I'd, I'd be, be prepared to guess that they might be a little bit underutilised in general practice in general exotic practice but but yeah i thought we'd have a talk about it yes and i'll tell you what they're fun they're <laughs> damn good fun doing these aren't they when i think about it they're, they're, they're one of those procedures that is not that particularly technically difficult um as long as you bear in mind the points that we will discuss here mark and very very useful procedure um, um to supplemental feed these animals and that's what we're using them mainly for aren't we yeah they they are sometimes used for um, hydration support but in the vast majority of instances we're going to be providing nutritional support for most of our patients i reckon these are tools to use in chronic situations most of our uh, our um, reptile or bird patients we're going to be able to manage acute issues with repeated uh, tubing, you know, handling and tubing them if it's a short, uh, short period of time that they need that per, uh, uh, enteral fluid therapy or even parenteral fluid therapy where we can go subcutaneous or intravenous. And it, so I would probably avoid using these tubes uh, in patients that are, have acute problems, but certainly those uh, more chronic issues, things that are going to take weeks to months to settle down, there are a number of sorts of cases where these tubes are exceptionally useful additional yes. therapeutic and, tools. and especially, it, well, it's certainly my experience, Mark, I don't have much experience with our avian friends, but with the reptiles, Mark, Chronic conditions, and these may be <laughs> a my, my, my ones that spring to mind are these um, long-term chelonians um, that haven't eaten for a long period of time. Um, I dealt with a wildlife park 
taught um, um, taught a smart that hadn't eaten for you know six months, and a lot of our reptiles everything happens slowly, and we may have a tube in there for a fair period of time as well and we'll chat about how long we can leave those tubes in mark and and the process of removing them as well so let's yep. jump into it so you talk about the chronic cases of the use of mark um, and what do we talk what we, what works better <laughs> mark with with the types of tubes and, and the species is, is the sort of general guidelines you recommend with, with, with reptiles and birds and the different types of reptiles, especially with the different, you know, chelonians and snakes and lizards, etc. compared with our, our birds, Mark. Um, um, what's some general sort of guidelines? Well, I think the first one that I'd mention is that there is a lot more literature about their use in turtles, in the chelonians. And I think that there is a little bit of, of a reason for that. So the next thing to say is that it's much, you know, in if you were to talk about dogs and cats, um, there certainly is a move to use esophagostomy tubes much more than pharyngostomy tubes in those species because pharyngostomy tubes tend to be, in our small animal traditional patients, more irritating, more likely to relate, uh, lead to gag reflexes and more likely... Um, to be as a consequence sort of like chucked up and uh, no longer aimed in the right direction, maybe poking outside the cat's mouth. And so the difficulty with our, our turtles and even more so with our lizards and snakes is that that esophagus is not a horribly long structure. And so we are often being very careful to measure the tube accurately and place it in such a way that it is least likely to flip around and come out. I've had that happen in bearded dragons, but less so in other species, maybe the sort of more elongated uh, neck species, the monitor lizards, the, the, um, the, the obviously the turtles, our long neck turtles here in Australia, the, uh, as you mentioned, the land tortoises. Yeah, uh, I find uh, that that while it doesn't automatically happen, there is an increased chance of uh, of getting a um, tube turning around the wrong way in a um, in a, a bearded dragon, for example. Yes, I do use. I tend to use the soft red rubber tubes. Yes, and um, and yeah, they they despite the fact that. They will, in some short esophagus species, flip around and, and turn the wrong way. They, by and large, if placed well, they tend to stay in place for most of the other species. So um, now you need to you need to define. You, you mentioned a particular phrase that now obviously listeners may not um, understand. Chucked up. Chucked up. What is chucked up. It's a very <laughs> Aussie term there, Mark. Well, it, it, I'm simply referring to the fact that the animal might develop a gag reflex and, and uh, regurgitate vomit, um, and that vomiting action may end up reorienting the tube so it stays fixed at the point where it passes through the wall of the esophagus and the skin and pokes out the mouth instead of poking down the esophagus more caudally directed and uh, and obviously doesn't do its job if it's pointed in the wrong direction, up chucked as well. <laughs> Excellent, Mark. Now, let's just briefly chat about what 
selection. We will we'll, we'll, we'll highlight the technique um, shortly. What sort of food products are we going to shove down these tubes, Mark? Well, I think this is a really, really good question, Brendan, because almost all the things we, – we need something that's uh, going to be able to be pushed through the, the you know relatively small bore diameter of the tube we have in place. And so for most of our carnivorous species, we're probably going to be using um, a product like Hills AD or one of the carnivore uh, uh, type foods that we can uh, blend up into a relatively liquid gruel and pass into the tube. For our more herbivorous species, we might uh, use something like uh, uh, the critical care product from Oxbow. Yep. And there is, whenever we do this with, it's like most things with our unusual and exotic and avian pets, there's going to be a little bit of MacGyvering, Brendan. We are probably going to have to, in some situations, get the blender out and get some food made up that's tailored to the individual species. So some of our Australian uh, freshwater colonians are a bit of a mixed bag. They might uh, uh, have a little bit of green material in their diet, a bit of plant material, as well as the higher protein insects and whatnot they can get tadpoles that they can get in freshwater and so those species we might be mixing up a mixture of something like ad and uh, um, maybe something that um, you know might even be um, a, a spinach paste or something along those lines that we blend in together yes but it has to be tailored for the species is the so take-home message for our birds mark for birds, it depends. Once again, there's uh, nice uh, uh, papers in the literature about using esophagostomy uh, um, tubes in raptors, in ducks, um, uh, many of the galliforms, um, of course, in parrots. And so we would probably in our parrots be using some sort of uh, hand-rearing mix, one of the commercial hand-rearing mixes. There are a number of maintenance uh, recovery foods for adult adult parrots um, that are even more suitable, but most practices would have hand-rearing mix on hand and that makes an excellent food. And obviously, uh, if we've got raptors, then the, something like the AD, uh, we might wet down some pelleted food for our ducks and, and blend that up and then provide that uh, through the feeding tube. So yes. same general principles. We're trying to get a nice liquid gruel that we can pass through, use a syringe to pass through the tube that as closely as possible mimics a healthy, relatively high-energy version of the natural diet of that species. Yes, and a classic indication for that in birds is the one those birds with uh, beak injuries, isn't it, Mark? For using a, one of these tubes, definitely. the 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 classic case is where we've had maybe I distinctly remember a case where I had a a cockatoo, a pair of cockatoos, Major Mitchell's cockatoos, and the male bird, in his enthusiasm to encourage the female to get into the the nesting box, bit her rather. Um, hard on the beak and caused her upper beak to drop off. He literally beat, bit her upper beak off. Now, the the uh, good thing is that 
the germinal epithelium appeared to be undamaged. And so uh, this bird might not have grown a normal beak, but is likely to grow some form of hard beak that she can use. Um, but she was going to need about six weeks of not using the beak at all. And particularly in that first few weeks, that anything that touched that delicate exposed mucosa um, was immensely painful for us. So being able to um, uh, get a tube into her and provide her with the, uh, we were using hand rearing mix with her, uh, probably sped her recovery, I reckon, because, um, because she was getting food in and it wasn't stressing her and causing pain, she was able to heal more quickly. Yes. And with our reptiles, I mentioned the long-term um, anorexic ones as a way to provide nutritional support and also get that gut move in as well, Mark, um, with some of these long-term anorexic reptiles with them. Now, you wanted to make a point about the fact of some some carers, and I presume this is specific, um, a little bit more specific with with avian carers, Mark, um, um, may may depend on these sorts of tubes a little bit more than they should. Yeah, I, I have had a couple of situations, and I've read of some situations where rather than manage. Uh, maybe behavioural problems, maybe uh, disease problems that um, particular owners and carers have almost elected to head straight towards, you know, almost plan to put a tube in place. And I just would always be cautious that that it's not a default natural position. It's a bit of an emergency thing. And if we're seeing, um, you know, a regular situation where a particular breeder of a particular type of bird was looking to continually get uh, uh, tubes of some sort put in so that um, uh, they didn't have problems with the mouth, um, then maybe we need to look at the husbandry of that um, particular establishment and, uh, and look to change it. We have had a couple of situations where we've declined to make that plan in advance until it was the right thing to do for that animal and uh, yes yeah, to have a look at the the husbandry that set things in place yes now let's jump into the technique mark um, and obviously we don't want to give a, um, a recipe over the year in a podcast mark but we do want to touch on some of the some of the um some of the techniques um that that you and i have used that that help um enable a a, a decent esophagostomy tube placement mark so one of the first things i was going to talk about the technique brendan is the whole left versus right argument you and i had a little discussion about this and if you look in the literature there, in our dogs and cats, for example, it is generally the left side. The esophagus is assumed to course above the trachea and drift a little bit to the left-hand side on the mid-cervical uh, region. And the opposite happens in birds and reptiles. It sort of leans a little bit to the right-hand side. But the fact of the matter is that while the predominant you know, the, the majority of the surface area of the esophagus might be on one side or the other, it's easily accessible from both sides and you're not really tied definitively. If you look in the literature, you might see left for dogs and cats, birds and reptiles on the right, but but don't be tied to that. Just, 
just go where you feel comfortable. Yes. The key thing that we discussed uh, before we came on air was that it, particularly if you're going on the right side with your birds and reptiles, you just need to be a little bit, uh, you know, get a good clear window, make sure you've uh, plucked the feathers or uh, um, given yourself a good visual uh, um, field of view so that you can uh, make sure you don't hit that jugular vein, which is a little bit larger on the right-hand side in those species. So you want to, um, the technique that I generally use is measuring my uh, red rubber tube, um, you know, marking it, uh, uh, roughly putting the end where I want it to be in the stomach, um, marking with a, a marking pen where I want it to uh, come through the skin, making sure I've got a mark on it so I know where it's going to go. Then either sedate or usually in reptiles I'm anaesthetizing them. I place them in sternal recovery uh, recumbency. Use a curve hemostat or other uh, um, similar sort of uh, clamp or tool, uh, surgical tool to enter the pharynx. Uh, then go into the esophagus. Then I press the, the tip, the curved tip out in most reptiles on the right side of the neck. And I visualize it through the skin, probably just open it up a little bit and do a very small nick through the skin and the mucosa of the esophagus so I can see the metal of the surgical instrument. Poke that through the hole and grab the end of my, um, my red rubber feeding tube, Brendan, and pull it through. I pull it through to the mouth generally. I fix it in position with a, often with a um, Chinese finger trap suture, maybe some tape to hold it into the skin, and then pass the end of the tube down into the stomach. Yes. Now, people sort of, um, when you first do in these mark and probably the first few times you think um how does that work how can you get that tube back down into the stomach but it seems to sort of flip its way down in there quite readily doesn't it in most cases I, well, the first few times i did it i was a bit afraid to actually bring it out of the mouth and sort of went oh, i'm not going to be able to do this i'm just going to aim it straight down and into the stomach but um i have found it i feel i get much better um much more confident entrapment of the tube if I've got the end of it out the mouth and I work on it that way and you're right once you get it fixed in the skin and you get your forceps and you guide the end of it down just past the incision that you've made give it a bit of a wiggle and it just does pop down into position yes now we mentioned about sort of uh, our preference for those red rubber tubes mark and there's certainly other types of um tubes that can be used diameter of these tubes mark i mean i tend to just try and select the biggest size that i think is going to work in that <laughs> that individual um so nothing too scientific um, i'm not measuring you know esophageal esophageal um diameter or anything like that but i i, I just go big or go home as <laughs> i think in our birds and reptiles you're exactly right i think they have very dilatable esophagus, uh, esophageal tissue there. 
they are able to distend that tube to often pass relatively large food items. And the principle is go as and, – and, and look, I think several things happen if you do go at a relatively large diameter. The tubes are more uh, rigid because they're a little bit larger and so they tend not to flip around as much. They're a little bit easier to manage in terms of um, – uh, squeezing the gruel through, through. If the tubes are really, really tiny, um, it can be a tedious and time-consuming process to um, squeeze that stuff through. And more than once, I've had it explode all over my face as I'm trying to apply a huge amount of pressure to the syringe to drive it through. Yes. So I like your go large or go home rule. You, you, you can usually use a relatively large diameter. Yes, tube and in I, these I think one of the other. One of the other tips related to that, Mark, um, is yes, we're often using products that um, will be fairly thick. Is that when you make up the the gruel, um, make it up just immediately before. Yeah, don't let it sit. It. You're right. Don't Good let tip. it turn in. Don't let it turn into concrete. <laughs> <laughs> and and it does that. <clears throat> I love my critical care. Um, it's a wonderful addition to our ability to treat our rabbits and uh, but if you leave it sitting around for an hour or uh, put it in the fridge and try and use it several times over um, if it's not freshly made up it becomes much more difficult to pass through those tubes doesn't it yep now we have that end of that tube mark and what we yep. what we're putting that um, we're, we're using this particular um, product or procedure um, for potentially several several days or several weeks and and in some cases even months mark yeah, um, yeah. so we're we're going to sort of put a put a, a bung or a cap in the tube end and then we're going to secure that in between the feeds mark and and the good the good news with our with our um chelonians mark is that we we can just just um glue it or tape it with some with some elastoplast on on the on the carapace can't we um, out of the way so there's no way that turtle or tortoise can can manage to damage it or, or extract it what do we do with the birds mark in in most cases with the birds with if i've got if i'm doing it with uh uh ducks um generally speaking um i've sewn the tube in the dorsal midline and the birds leave it alone in my parrots of course uh even the ones that have injured beaks, they'll still have a go at a tube that's just maybe attached to the feathers. And so generally speaking, we're using some sort of Elizabethan collar and, um, and attaching the, the um, tube to the Elizabethan collar. And that seems to um, protect it from the bird causing any damage. Oh, I've lost Brendan. Hopefully... Hopefully, yes. Ah, well, good. <laughs> yes, I was um, pausing myself while I was having a quick um, drink of water there, Mark. Now removing them. Ah, removing them. It's always a uh, um, a great day when you've got the animal to the stage. And uh, well, just before we talk about removing them, I was going to quickly mention that as they approach the time to remove them, it's often good to give them the opportunity to. Um, to have access to food, that many of the animals that will have a tube in place, if given access to um, small amounts of food, they'll, they'll have a go at the food and you can be even more confident that the time is right 
um, to move it out. Obviously, uh, uh, if you've got a good esophagostomy tube, it's not going to interfere with the normal functions of the mouth and pharynx. And so the animal, you know, let's say we've got a blue tongue that has a fractured jaw. It's been like this for six weeks. I would remove the, the um, material around the jaw, take my x-rays, be confident everything's healed, let the animal have something to eat before I pulled it out. Yes. Uh, but once I'm confident it's the right time, I just slide it out, Brendan. I just cut the uh, Chinese finger trap suture material and slide it out. I'm often left with a little wound and probably 50-50. I would maybe put a single suture in that wound. Um, uh, most of the time, the wound is surprisingly clean. And in a large number of patients, while I'm thinking about the wound for a day or so, it's healed up, Brendan, and I don't have to do anything to it. It's amazing how it just auto-magically heals itself, isn't it? <laughs> yes, there. It's one of the one of the mysteries of nature. The way these heal up, I think, Mark. Um, I love these. I love these, and I don't do enough of them. I must admit, you mentioned at the start that we tend to underutilize um, this particular. Um, uh, what are we going to call it? Technique or? or um, process or, or, or um, tube, Mark. We need to do more of it. I'd be really keen, Brendan, to um, to hear from our uh, wonderful listeners how frequently they um, they use esophagostomy uh, or pharyngostomy tubes. What problems they've had, and um, and yeah, um, any particular techniques that they find work for them. If they could let us know. Uh, um, through our website, through our email, that would be excellent. It would vetgurus at gmail.com. Send us your your best pharyngostomy, esophagostomy stories, tubes, tips, trip, tricks, and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time